News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. And it's Monday, the 27th of September. I'm Stuart Lohman, and joining me in the virtual studio, I've got Justin Rowe Roberts, Nadia Swat, and Jared Neves. Jared, you new to the Power Hour team? How are things in Cape Town? Quiet and cold. I hope you're not sending that weather up to Joburg, but it usually does make it up. Um, I'm sure all the listeners also had a good long weekend. Justin, I'm not sure what your thoughts were on the rugby. Great game, Stu. I thought the Springboks played incredibly well just to get beaten right at the end by the All Blacks, but it could have gone either way, and I'm really looking forward to the second test match between the arch rivals this weekend. Yeah, we, We're not usually let down by a Springbok-Kiwi uh, game of rugby, that's for sure. Just on the show today, Alec Hogg is back behind the mic. He chats to Rob Herfsoff. He gets a follow-up after Rob's YouTube video went a bit viral this weekend, uh, questioning certain leadership positions. He also chats to Phil Craig from the Cape Independence Advocacy Group. They've submitted a referendum to Parliament for the Cape Independence. I'm not sure what our Capetonians think of that move. Nadia? I think I'm for it. I must say, like, when someone's opposed to it, then I do. There's merit in their argument. But from a personal standpoint, I think... I think it could work. Excellent. Bronwyn Nielsen also chats to David Shapiro. He gives us the latest on the markets. And then we have our currency focus with Treasury One's Andres Siliers. Our partners from the Financial Times also bring, up to, bring us up to speed with what's happening in China. And there's also a little thing on SPACs. Justin, we've spoken about SPACs, these specially, special purpose acquisition companies. They seem to think they're coming under pressure and a lot of money is actually being taken out of these trusts. Yeah, very interesting, Stu. I've seen some some data on Twitter. The SPAC ETF this year in New York is down around 20 to 25%. That's after a big SPAC boom in 2020. That sort of continued into this year. But a lot of these companies haven't been able to make acquisitions, which is the issue and why I think the SPACs are down. Excellent. Jared, I know you've joined us to give us some insight into what's making news on .com, the business website. Uh, let us know what's happening on that side. So popular stories on business.com today. Uh, Rob Herzog is proving rather popular on the website with the two quotes pieces doing very well. Uh, a community speaks piece focusing on Herzog's views is also picking up the pace. A uh, column penned by Dr. Tami Mazwa is still being well read. He focuses on South Africa's economy and the basic income grant. Mazwa says another grant will place the country in ICU. Another article doing well is ESCOM CEO Andre DeRay discussing how to reset the state-owned entity. Thanks, Jared. And Nadia on the YouTube side? Hairs off, hairs off, hairs off. <laughs> it's his part two, the Q&A with Alec at the second business conference. And then the follow-up that he did with Hersoff this morning, just after all the traction that it's gained. And then the flash briefing uh, from Thursday is also being well-watched. And there's a very similar on the podcast front, the Hersoff Q&A leading the pack that side. The interview with Justin did with Sean Pesh from Thursday and then Thursday night's flash briefing also been well listened to. But let's check in on the news and markets. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Department of Health Director General Dr. Sandile Butelezi has been suspended over his alleged role in the department's digital vibe scandal. Butelezi signed off 60 million rand in payments to the company for the irregular NHI and COVID communication contracts. The DG has been placed on precautionary suspension ahead of a disciplinary hearing. Eyes are on Deputy DG Anben Pillay, who reportedly signed off the first 74 million rand payment to the company, but is yet to face any disciplinary action. The South African National Treasury succession planning is sufficient to ensure the exit of key personnel doesn't disrupt plans to return public finances to a sustainable path. Chepiso Makhloli, the head of assets and liability management and the most high-profile woman at the Treasury, last week became the latest senior official to resign. While investors have no doubt about the skills and qualifications of the Treasury staff, they are concerned that there aren't enough experienced individuals to replace departing veterans and fill other vacancies. Investors will look to Enoch Gorongwana on the 4th of November for clear strategies to lower debt and reduce budget deficits. 
Investments of about $280 billion will be needed to cope with the effects of climate change in 35 cities in South Africa, Kenya and Ethiopia by 2050. Africa is the fastest urbanizing continent and also the hardest hit by global warming, the Coalition for Urban Transitions, which advises governments on economic development and climate change, said in a report. Africa's urban development is likely to confront unprecedented biophysical risks, the group said. Three pillars will be crucial for low-carbon, climate-resilient urban development, compact urban growth, connected infrastructure, and clean technologies. And Justin, on the markets, I know with all the noise last week, both the local and U.S. markets finished in the green. I'm not sure how they're looking today. Similar theme, Stu. The JSE All Share Index is up at 64,200. I know a lot of the global indices are also up today. In the currency markets, the rand is weaker against all the major currencies to 15 rand, 9 cents to the dollar, 20 rand and 66 cents to the pound, and 17 rand and 65 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,751 an ounce. A Kruger rand is trading at around 28,000 rand. Brent crude is up at $80 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 650,000 rand. In the financial news, the rand is taking a bigger hit than most of its emerging market peers as an energy crisis and Chinese growth concerns batter the South African currency and worsen the country's inflation outlook. The currency declined for a second day on Monday to its weakest level in more than a month as oil prices soared, whilst traders fretted over China's growth hurdles and how that would affect prices of the raw materials that account for close to half of South Africa's exports. The weaker currency, along with crude oil prices at the highest in more than two years, pushed break-even rates, which reflect bond investors' expectations of price rises to levels last seen in June 2019. Tracy Brodziak, a veteran of the asset management industry, has joined Coronation Fund Managers. Brodziak, who resigned from Old Mutual Investment Group at the end of April after more than 20 years with the company, joined Fedo Cape Town-based asset manager Coronation in July. Coronation confirmed Brodziak's appointment to Business Day, although they did not specify her designation. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Monday, September 27th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Germany held historic elections yesterday and polls closed with leading parties neck and neck. China's troubled property behemoth Evergrande is looking shakier, so Chinese cities are now taking action to fend off the fallout. And in the U.S. debate over abortion, a group of academics has weighed in on the economic impact of restricting access to the procedure. Plus, the average tenure of bank CEOs in the U.S. is shrinking, but a certain few seem to be fixtures. There is this feeling on Wall Street that if you have a good thing with your CEO, if the stock price is performing okay, and they seem to be doing a a decent job managing risk, then their boardrooms are, are happy to keep the CEOs in place. I'm Jess Smith, in for Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. The Evergrande crisis continues to unfold. The massively indebted Chinese property developer has struggled to access credit in the wake of Beijing's crackdown on property sector leverage and soaring house prices. Evergrande has missed bond payments, and now at least two local governments in China are taking action. The FT reports that officials in the southern city of Guangzhou have asked an Evergrande subsidiary to put revenue from pre-sales at a stalled residential development into a state-controlled custodial account. They say it's to protect home buyers and to make sure construction continues. In another southern city, Zhuhai, housing officials have also asked an Evergrande residential project to transfer proceeds from sales into a government account. We may be hearing the hissing sounds of a deflating SPAC bubble. Investors in special purpose acquisition companies are pulling their cash out at increasingly higher rates. SPACs are shell companies that raise money by listing on the stock market, and they put the money they raise into a trust before finding an acquisition target. Some SPACs have had their trust accounts almost wiped out. 
According to the data provider Dealogic, the average redemption rate in the third quarter was more than 50%. That's up from 10% in the first quarter of the year. That was the height of the SPAC frenzy, and about $100 billion worth of SPACs were listed. The FT spoke to one top Wall Street banker who likened that first quarter to the internet bubble of 2000, but for SPACs. He said a confluence of factors drove, quote, insane risk-seeking behavior, particularly at a retail investor level, and he added, we'll never see that again. In the U.S., the legal battle over abortion is escalating. And now a group of academic economists has weighed in on an abortion case that the U.S. Supreme Court will hear later this year. Last week, more than 150 economists filed a brief about how women will be affected if states such as Mississippi and Texas are allowed to put stringent new restrictions on the procedure. The basic gist is to say that abortion in the time that it's been legal in the United States has had a, quote, significant impact on women's wages and educational attainment, with impacts most strongly felt by black women. The FT's Claire Bushy says that this economic argument is unusual because abortion tends to be talked about by opponents and supporters in terms of ethics and morality or the government's role. People are not used to thinking about abortion in an economic way. And it's absolutely an economic issue. It affects labor force participation. It affects earnings. It affects whether or not a woman is likely to finish a degree. It affects whether or not you are more likely or less likely to live in poverty. It's very important to women's economic lives. And so I think abortion rights supporters are trying to make it clear exactly what will happen to women if abortion access shrinks more than it already has. Claire Bushy is the FT's correspondent in Chicago. In U.S. banking, CEO tenures are getting shorter and shorter. According to recent research that looked at publicly traded companies, the average tenure of departing chief executives has shrunk from nearly 15 years back in 2017 to seven years. And then you've got CEOs like Jamie Dimon and Brian Moynihan. The chief executives of J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America have been there forever, it seems, and they're not going anywhere anytime soon. To talk more about bank CEO tenures, I'm joined by our U.S. banking editor, Josh Franklin. Hey, Josh. Hey. So I mentioned Jamie Dimon and Brian Moynihan. Um, you also talk about uh, Morgan Stanley CEO, James Corman. Is it just these three that stand out as having these really long tenures? Of the large banks, yes. It's really those three that are kind of having decade-long or multi-decade-long um, CEO tenures. And it really is a kind of contrast to what we're seeing in the broader financial industry, uh, which is for shorter CEO tenures at a number of financial services companies, especially smaller ones. And this is in part because you've seen a push for greater diversity in the, in the C-suite at a number of companies, you know, a better representation of women and minorities. And that's kind of pushing for some of the change that we're seeing in some of these executive rooms. So as for those few forever CEOs like Jamie Dimon, I mean, is this new? I mean, is it unusual for them to stay so long? And, and is there a benefit? Long CEO tenures on Wall Street aren't new per se. You know, we, we saw the, the last CEO of, of Goldman Sachs, Lloyd Blankfein, he led the bank for 12 years before he ultimately left in, in 2018. And there is this feeling on Wall Street that if you have a good thing with your CEO, if the stock price is performing okay, and they seem to be doing a, a decent job managing risk, then their boardrooms are, are happy to keep the CEOs in place. The leverage that these CEOs have that allows them to stay for as long as they are is the, the performance of the bank and the share price. If it's clear that investors don't have um, any qualms or concerns about them staying for as long as they are, then boards seem happy to, to keep them in place. Um, replacing bank CEOs is a very, very hard job. You've got to find someone who can navigate the complexity of these organizations, um, help manage the risk, and is willing to, you know, at times be a kind of punching bag for the public whenever something bad happens on, on Wall Street. So they're hard positions to fill. So if you're a bank and you have something that works, then they're, they're happy to kind of let CEOs stay in place. Josh, can you talk a little bit more about how the job of being CEO of a major bank has changed? 
Yeah, um, if you're a CEO of a, of a major Wall Street firm, you know you have to appear in front of Congress at least once a year for grueling uh, grillings by lawmakers, uh, and that's if there are, you know aren't any kind of PR disasters for your bank that kind of leads you to be to be called up even more than that. You have to do constant reporting of um, what your bank is doing to regulators. Obviously, these executives are very well compensated. You know, James Gorman was the the highest paid CEO on Wall Street last year, making more than twenty million dollars. So it's not a hardship from from that point of view. But they are very demanding, difficult jobs. That if you have shown that you can do it well, then um, boards are happy to to keep you in place for a long time. And what are the downsides then of having a CEO who never leaves? Well, one of the big downsides is your lieutenants can get um, sick and tired of of waiting around to to see if they're going to get a chance to take the top job as well. You know, a lot of people in finance are very ambitious, and so they'd like to be CEOs of big companies one day themselves. And so if you've got someone who's going to be sticking around for 5, 10, 15 years, then you're thinking to yourself, it's not really likely that I'm going to get a chance to run this bank one day. And so they might move elsewhere. The other potential risk is that it can be a kind of blockage on diversity. You know, there's only been one uh, woman CEO so far of of a major Wall Street bank. That was Jane Fraser earlier this year at Citigroup. And we're still waiting on on who might follow her. The counterpoint to that is banks are doing a decent job of promoting more diverse slate of candidates within the broader C-suite. So into kind of being group heads and division heads and kind of potentially teeing them up to be CEOs one day if and when these these CEOs eventually stand back. Josh Franklin is the FT's U.S. banking editor. Thanks, Josh. Thanks. And before we go, Germany's election yesterday. It was the first in post-war history in which an incumbent chancellor did not stand for re-election. Angela Merkel's departure meant voters did not have strong allegiances, and that made for a very unpredictable election. When polls closed, the two leading parties, the center-right CDU and the center-left SPD, were neck and neck. The Greens were in third place. The country now looks set to have a three-way coalition government. It's also a first in recent history. And that could take weeks of wrangling. We'll be covering all the results. You can read more on all these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Roman Nielsen with me now is David Shapiro, Sassman Securities. Well, let's just look at the markets. Obviously, a long weekend here in South Africa, uh, coming out of the South African Reserve Bank's decision to keep interest rates on hold. But there's a lot of debate in the market right now as to when we're going to see that first interest rate increase in the South African space. Uh, A lot of people saying November, David. Chatting earlier to Andre Siliers from Treasury One, he's looking for a raise uh, in the first quarter of 2022 of just 25 basis points. I mean, this is not traditionally a space that you get involved in, but you must be listening listening to the chatter. Yeah, I I look at it from a practical point of view. In other words, I, I try to read markets and say, what's the mood? You know, should we be putting interest rates? Is there excess demand? What's, um, you know, what is, if there is inflation, what is driving inflation? Is it cost push inflation? And not, sorry, is it demand push inflation? Is everybody rushing out to go buy things? Or is it just circumstances that leading to it? And, uh, you know, if it's circumstances, as a non-economist accountant, I'm saying, look, these things will pass. They kind of sort themselves out over time. Why do you want to put up interest rates? Also, Putting up interest rates is necessarily knocks confidence. It knocks confidence at a time where we're trying to build up confidence. So I, uh, I'm not a great person. You know, when it comes to inflation, um, it comes and goes. It, it, it's all over the place. So I, I, I don't see the reason. You know, I'm saying, why do you want to tamper with interest rates at this point? We are not a strong economy. If you listen to the governor, he said he's increasing uh, growth for this year to 5.3, but for the next two years, it's, I don't know, 1.7, it's below 2%. We need 4, 5% on an ongoing basis. 
to get rid of all the troubles that we find in our economy. So, you know, I'm trying to put it in easy to understand sound bites. I'm saying I don't see any reason for, uh, you know, to tamper with confidence at, at, at this point. So, I, 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 you know, Andre's far better qualified. He what? watches the currencies. He watches all of that. I'm saying why? Well, we were chatting about the risk-off scenario that also is driving the rand now um, beyond 15 to the dollar. And uh, it looks as though rand weaknesses is setting in. Yeah. Again, this is not something necessarily that you focus on. But I think yeah. this risk-off scenario, David, is crucial in terms of our discussion because of the electricity shortages that we're seeing in the Northern Hemisphere and in China, shortage of LNG. Um, in wow. the UK and uh, China itself having electricity shortages. Uh, Andre, again, sorry, I came out of a conversation with him into yours, so I'm using yeah. him to kind of piggyback our conversation. But uh, Andre saying this is seasonal, we're going into winter in yeah. the Northern Hemisphere. Are you concerned that this is something bigger in the Northern Hemisphere and in yeah. China? No, it's short term. It's the same as the trucks in in uh, in the UK, <laughs> because they know uh, they need trucks to deliver the petrol. It's not that there's no petrol; they just need trucks. So this is not something that's going to last permanent. You know that people are queuing to fill up their cars. It will pass, and and I think the same thing. Uh, you know, with the gas crisis that we're seeing in in China and and also in the uh, in Europe that's yeah. coming through from. Uh, I think from the Nordic nations and also from uh, you know from Russia, the pipelines, the block, whatever it is, it's just not making, it's not getting there in time. But it's not that there's a shortage of gas. There, there's plenty of. And uh, believe me, if you go to the United States, uh, once they start fracking, they can, you know, they can produce as much gas as they want. The difficulty is getting it across and various kind of different qualities and so on. So I don't, I'm not carried away with it. I think all that's giving is a little bit of headlines for the media at the moment. They're focusing on those stories. The same as the German election. You know, we don't know how it's going to unfold and what it's going to mean. It's very difficult to speculate. Uh, I, you well, know, well no, let's look at some of the, the underlying themes then. If you look at Brent crude uh, tracking at nearly $80 a barrel, I mean, this could be a play into Sassel short term. Yes. I haven't got your view on Sassel for some time. Maybe give me the rundown there. I, I think, you know, Sassel's taken off. And um, I, I'm, I've got this one completely wrong because uh, not, not, and credit to management who have managed to swing things around, but they've also had a lot of help from uh, a turnaround in the global economy that we didn't expect and the pickup in, in gas and uh, oil prices, chemical prices and so on. Um, and and ma management have put their heads down and got it right. Funny enough, the two stocks, that are doing very well at the moment and might have run ahead of themselves. One is Cecil, the other is Aspen. And both were in the same position where they, they had this crunch. I mean, they were overextended, overborrowed. They were heading for uh, the knacker yard. In other words, you know, everybody was rubbing their hands. This is a liquidation. This is bankruptcy. They're in deep trouble. It's going to be very hard. And both management teams just put their heads down and have turned it around. But we've got kind of different companies coming out of what was there before. And we're not quite sure how to read them. But the market's liking them. And Aspen, which we thought was a little expensive, 200, 210 after a very run, is now 250, 260. And, and the same with Sassel. You know, 200, 210 was looking expensive. Now 270, uh, running ahead of itself. So now, David, you, said that you, hadn't, behind you hadn't called Sassel correctly. No. What about Aspen? Did you get part I, of, of that? I haven't been in Aspen, but I also thought it was starting to look a little, you know, I, I, I like the team and I'm very pleased for the people involved there at uh, the way this has come out. And, uh, but I mean, when we start to look at pure economics, I uh, saw pure fundamentals and you're starting to project forward, both of them are starting to look a little stretched in terms of valuation. So we so should we, shouldn't we, should we, shouldn't we, you know, is it too late? And the more we say that, the higher it's going. Well, that's it. Is it too late for both of those stocks now? As you say, uh, you know, you've got to call it somewhere. I, I, I've got no calls at the moment. That's why I'm just standing back and taking punishment, you know, and, and taking the abuse that is, that is due, you know, for getting it too late, Too late to get in, in other words, is what you're I, saying. You're not going to go in so. now. 
I, you know, I think so. I think we can re-look at it when, when, when the results come through and we're able to go through in great detail and say, okay, how do we project from now on? You know, I, I, I like, Bronwyn, I like to look down the line. You know, I like to look two, three years down the line and say, can they sustain these kind of levels of growth? Can they sustain the profitability that they're making now at these kind of, uh, at, at these levels? So uh, it's, it's, it's a difficult call. Look, Goldman Sachs, who always get things wrong, are getting, are calling oil a lot higher, you know, so unfortunately, it's, it's, you know, we could find Brent at 80. It's not, you know, in these kind of circumstances where there is, that seems to be a squeeze. I'd love commodity prices to go high because it's a reflection, not of shortages, but of good demand, which is what we want in the global economy. We but want ultimately, ultimately, you're not rushing into Aspen and to Sassel at these levels because no, you, you no. feel that they've run hard. What about Capitech? The, the tech analysts out there are all getting very excited about Capitech breaking through ranges. Anything you're watching on that side? No, I, I get nervous again, <laughs> and I come back to I come back to our economy. Uh, 5.3 percent this year. Yes, better than expected. Next year we go into what we used to call the Great Funk. You know, in the olden day terms, you know, uh, just like we plot, we are where we were uh, doing nothing. And I'm a, I love the top line. I always look for top line growth. You know, are they selling more of their product? Because once you're selling more of your product at the top line, it's very easy to manage the bottom line costs, efficiency. That's easy. You know, you can't do costs and efficiencies without a top line. So I'm, 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 Capitech, I rate very highly because they're innovative and they're not dragged down by legacy issues. They haven't got great big tower buildings, you know, full of people and, and, and uh, you know, bricks and mortar in every small town in the country. So it allows them to be flexible. They are a modern and good bank. And I like them very much. And it's probably the one area I would watch carefully. And they're going into other areas. So a slight turn in the economy, if it does happen, you know, gives them the advantage. And the people love them. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. It's a warm welcome to Rob Hershoff. After a completely viral talk that you gave at the business conference in the Drakensberg, why I say that there were a hundred people in the two rooms that we had on the joint stage in the middle to comply with COVID regulations. And the video has been seen by a hundred thousand people already. I've had a lot of feedback, Rob. And much of the feedback is, okay, well, you know, this guy can afford to say these things. But what does he intend doing about it? And surely, if he's investing himself, there's a bit of a contrast with what he was saying, that South Africa is uninvestable. What's your feedback been? So I've got thousands of messages. The vast majority have been positive, and they've come from South Africans, Africans, people internationally, of all races. I've got hundreds of messages from black friends, white friends, you name it. The general message is the following. This is something that needed to be said. No one else has stood up and said it. Well done on you to say it. Quite a lot of negatives from that as well. And I do have some regrets. You know, remember, it was a few days after the civil unrest um, at your excellent conference. Jason McCormick made that incredible presentation, 72 Hours of Anarchy. And, you know, I got up on the stage to make my speech and I was pretty emotional and pretty angry. I'd been getting a lot of messages from people in desperate situations in KZN and Gauteng asking for help, people isolated on farms, people having to defend themselves with no help from the military or the police or scant help. And, you know, Jason gave this incredible presentation and, and I got up there thinking, you know, stuff this, I'm upset, I'm pissed off. I'm, I'm going to say what I'm angry about. The ANC has let us down. The ANC is destroying this country. And we need to all vote for the opposition, for Herman Mashab of Action SA, for the DA. We need to get the ANC out. 
They're destroying the country and they're destroying the economy. But, you know, my wife, who's my soulmate, my greatest spirit and who I listen to, said to me, I shouldn't have named names and I really shouldn't have. So that was a mistake. But the reality is you cannot keep voting for something that is destroying you. It's not a football team that you support through thick and thin. This is our government. And if they're destroying the country, vote them out. So, you know, an extraordinary thing happened yesterday. You know, I did name names and I, I wish I hadn't actually, but I called out the transport minister. He called me yesterday and I said to him, I can't believe that I've insulted you publicly and now you're calling me. I said, it takes a real man to do that. And he laughed. He said, these things happen. Don't worry about it. I clearly am not skilled enough to be a politician. But I mean, to his credit, I mean, that takes a real man to do that. He picked the phone up to me. I should have picked it up to him. What was that conversation like? What was it about? No, I mean, it was brief. And, and, and I basically took the initiative and said to him, look, I shouldn't have. I wish I'd used someone else's name and not yours. Because, uh, but it was what it was. And he said, eh, these things happen. Look, you know, we've got to try and do the right thing for the country and make good things happen. So let's meet and I'll, you know, let, tell me what your grievances are and let's see if we can make good on them. So impressive, when, I have to say. When you're in the middle of a, of a firestorm, clearly you feel like it's all focused on you. But what was interesting to me was Khalema Motlante, former president of the country and a elder statesman of uh, the ANC, himself in a hard talk interview with the BBC, uh, said he thinks people should not vote for the ANC this time around. So it's interesting. It's coming from other quarters as well. Maybe what you said was articulating what a lot of others, both within the ANC and outside of it, are actually feeling. Do you know there were some very senior ANC ministers and members uh, who sent messages to friends of mine to give to me, very critical of what I said. But then the second half of most of their messages said, you know, we're well aware of the failings of, of our government and of what we're doing. So even within the ANC, there's a lot of, you know, soul searching and realizing that this is, this is not happening. You know, the economy is, is not happening. But, you know, w what I did was I criticized but didn't give an action plan. I said, it, this is an easy economy to fix. There's so much goodwill. We have so much human ingenuity. We have everything in this country. And I criticized the ANC for destroying the economy and messing up. But I didn't give an action plan. But to be fair, you only had 20 minutes. My fault. I gave you 20 minutes to do the talk. And then we, there was a lot of ground covered in the Q&A. And I was firing on emotions there as well. The action plan, what is that? Now that you've had time to reflect. Look, I don't think the ANC is capable of doing it or have the will. You know, they want to just, you know, empower the elite. You know, they want to make very few people wealthy and they don't care about the broad base of the population. It's simple. This country has population growth higher than economic growth. And that's a recipe for disaster. It means every year we get poorer. Every year there's less opportunity in this country. You have to have economic growth that exceeds population growth. And there's no reason why we shouldn't have the highest economic growth in Africa and be the engine of Africa again. You know, why should Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire and countries like that have 5 6 7% economic growth and we're at less than 1%? Ridiculous. It's because the policies are wrong. And the ANC never talk about economic growth. They don't talk about growth, investment, employment. They talk about redistribution, expropriation without compensation. They have no idea how to build an economy, how to build businesses. And it's proven by the fact that they can't do service delivery. They can't run state-owned enterprises. All of ISOEs are bust. You know, they just don't know how to do it. They're incompetent. So we need to end lockdown immediately. The COVID crisis is as good as over. Yes, people are still getting sick. And yes, some people are dying. I lost a very close friend, Richard Conto, this weekend. And we need to end it. It's over. There's no reason for the government now to tell us what we need to do and what we don't need to do under lockdown. End lockdown. Two, sell off state-owned enterprises. Sell them off. The government can't run businesses. And by the way, this applies to just about every government in the world. Business people can run businesses. Sell them off. Get rid of South African Airways. It's over. Let international airlines, Ethiopian airlines and others do international flights. And Airlink, 
ships, Comair, Fly Sapphire can do local and regional. They're equipped to do it. They know how to do it. Why resuscitate South African Airways? The ANC's broken it and stolen it. It's over, finished. And sell off all the other ones. And instead of having BEE legislation, which doesn't work, even Julius Malema says it doesn't work, you know, make sure that the state-owned enterprises are sold off and that the majority ownership are the new black South African industrialists. Instead of taking pieces of private companies, which is theft in my view, why not take the state-owned enterprises, privatize them, but ensure that South African black industrialists and not the usual people, new ones, have the majority ownership and build those businesses. It's but how do you pick possible. them? Surely that's a pick, what? A, a pick who well, the industrialists don't have the, are. Don't have the usual, <laughs> I'm trying not to name names, but don't have the usual you-know-whos, you know, yeah, suspects. Three, energy supply. You know, businesses, you can't build a business if you don't have power, if you don't have consistent power. So ESCOM's failed. It's been broken and stolen to death. It's over. Lift the lid on independent power producers. There's a ton of money within South Africa and foreign money ready to come in to invest in not just renewable energy, but also fossil fuels. You know, I'm not as anti-fossil fuels as everyone, but I think we've got fossil fuels. As kind of, let's use them. Let's build power plants. But let private money do it. Why does the government, government can't run businesses? Use them while you we know, can. Yeah. Exchange controls, remove exchange controls, reform visa regulations. We want talented foreigners to come here. Silicon Valley took off like a rocket when all those incredible international and Indian uh, technologists and entrepreneurs were allowed into America. They flowed in. Silicon Valley took off like a rocket. Let's do the same here. Let's encourage people to come here and build businesses. And then get rid of EWC. Expropriation without compensation is so stupid. It's theft. It's, it's just the most idiotic thing on the planet. And it's scaring away all foreign investment. And finally, you've got to make South Africans feel safe and confident. You know, people don't feel safe in this country and there's no confidence. We've got to restore that. This is very simple to do. Our country should be growing at 5 to 10% a year. And everybody will benefit. Everybody. Given what the solutions are, and do they, they sound very sane and sensible, uh, what do you think the election that's coming up in November, on November the 1st is going to tell us, given that Khalima Motlantes even says, don't vote ANC. Rob Herzog has been explaining why, uh, and there have been many others. And there are new forces emerging. We heard at our conference from Muzi Maimani, He's got uh, helped 350 independent candidates uh, put forward by the communities they serve. So there's, there's something that could be happening here, a bit of a watershed, or are you of the opinion that it's same old, same old? No, I think the ANC is going to be shredded. I think they're going to go way below 50%. You know, they can't do service delivery. They can't run municipalities. They can't run cities. They can't run provinces. You know, they just can't run anything is the answer. And people are aware of that, even within the ANC. But there's this kind of sort of loyalty to the ANC, which, and again, it's not a football team. This is, these are the people that run the country. So stop voting for them, but don't not vote. You know, there are 16 million people who are, reg who are registered voters who don't vote. If half of those vote for Herman Mashaba, Action SA, the DA, whomever, but not the ANC, we then could even have a coalition government of good people that believe in the whole country and economic growth. And then we're on track. And I am South African. I came back from 31 years overseas. I live in South Africa. I'm investing in South Africa. I believe in our country. I love our country. And I want it to be a success for everyone. Is that why you put your head above the parapet, which so few business leaders are prepared to do? You know, again, I shouldn't have named names there, but the business leaders are either cowards, selfish, or, or they've left the country. If they left the country, fair enough. But the ones that are here are just not standing up and being counted. Why should I do it? Why me? 
anyway, I, you know, I seem to put my head above the parapet and that's that. Why not you? That's some, also Many true. people are that's, saying. No, that's also true. I know, but it would be nice to have some of the big names in business in this country step up and say, you know, Rob was a bit overboard, but generally what he was saying is correct and we endorse it. <laughs> the silence is deafening. So where to from here, Rob? Look, there are a lot of good, there are a lot of good people in this country, and what the what the civil unrest in KZN and Gauteng showed is, thank goodness, there are more good people in this country than bad, and the good people who have stayed in this country, who either don't have an option to leave, or don't want to leave because they love it like I do, they love this country, need to get behind the good guys now. They need to be voting for Action SA, for the DA, you know, for uh, Patriotic Alliance, for the good guys, and get the ANC out. Well, welcome to Phil Craig on a big day for you guys, Phil. Uh, yeah. Hi, Alec. Nice to be with you again. Yes, uh, yeah, a, a good day for us today, yes. Cape Independence Advocacy Movement has uh, been at it for how long? Our organisation, that the Cape Independence Advocacy Group, or, or the CIAG, for those that, <laughs> that they don't want to spit their teeth out, um, we, we've been going for uh, for about eighteen months. Uh, although obviously the, the, there were people who were pursuing independence for longer than than that, but yeah, we've been going for eighteen months. And maybe just explain to those who haven't seen your press statements today why it's such an important or relevant day for us to be talking. Sure. Well, we have now formally called for a referendum on Cape independence. And, and this is something we've we've considered quite carefully in terms of the timing. Uh, we called on Premier Alan Windy to uh, to call a referendum. Um, and we then uh, met with the presidency and we formally notified uh, President Ramaphosa of our a call for a referendum, which we handed to uh, to Premier Windy. So so now we've we've done it. We've pressed the button. Uh, we actually we've, we formally want a referendum. So what's the symbolic relevance of this? It's, it's a good question because um, I think a lot of people have have the sort of misconception that a referendum is the is the end of the process as opposed to the start of the process. And a referendum under South African law isn't isn't uh, binding unless unless the parties choose to make it binding. So at this point in in time, what we're trying to, to establish is what do the people of the Western Cape want? So effectively, what we're talking about is, is democracy, uh, and and that's always been our position. You know, we, we're bipartisan. We, we you know we, we uh, represent people from from across the political spectrum, uh, and first and foremost. We want to consult with the people of the Western Cape. I think we all understand that that things are going horribly wrong in South Africa, and we're all looking for solutions. Uh, the solution that we've put on the table is is uh, independence for the Western Cape, uh, and we want to democratically consult with the people of the Western Cape and find out how they feel about it. And I think whether people support Cape independence, whether they oppose Cape independence, or whether they're neutral on the issue, uh, I, I think yeah, all Democrats should should recognise that this is a significant issue, which now clearly has widespread support, and to democratically consult with the people of the Western Cape is, is so obviously the right thing to do that we just need to get on with it. It looks a little opportunistic in its timing, and I say this because the Democratic Alliance has been muted on its position on Cape independence. Is this intended to make the DA actually come out and support it or support the referendum one way or the other? Yes, to a certain extent, uh, not just the DA, but clearly the DA is the party of provincial government in the Western Cape are fairly critical to the process. And what we've seen from Cape Independence is that the um, is, is that the tail is is in, is trying to wag the dog, which is right. We've got this scenario where there's three million voters in the Western Cape. Let, let's assume that a million of them uh, are, are are going to vote for for the ANC and a couple for the EFF, whatever happens. That 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 leaves two million. Let let me call them relatively safe sensible people who are looking for solutions. Um, we know from polling, which we've done twice now, that, that, are, that roughly 1.4 million of those 2 million voters uh, are, are favourable towards Cape independence. Um, so it's a really significant number of people. And, and, and politically, you know, that's significant. And at this point in time where, where the political parties are going to the polls, um, then clearly this is a discussion that we want to have. And actually, it's interesting you, 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 you bring it up um, because um, uh, we're busy working on a voting guide, which we hope to have released by the end of the week. And we have written to all of the major political parties and asked their position on two questions. Um, do they support Cape independence? 
And and perhaps more critically at this point in time, do they support a democratic consultation with the people of the Western Cape in the form of a referendum on Cape independence? And we're going to release that at the end of this week. And I think it's going to shock an awful lot of people. At this point in time, there there are already six parties who are behind a a referendum on Cape independence, uh, some of of which who haven't publicly so far declared their support for a referendum on Cape independence. They don't all necessarily support independence outright. and we're still waiting for for four more. And I, I suspect that number of six is going to increase. So I think by the end of this week, we're going to be into a, in a situation where a referendum on Cape independence is a virtual certainty. Um, and I think it's going to be extraordinarily difficult for the DA to not call a referendum on Cape independence. They've already, uh, you know, they, they, they promote autonomy for the Western Cape already. Uh, they are already uh, brought this private members bill to fix the legislation so a referendum can take place. It would really be quite an extraordinary move if virtually all the major parties in the Western Cape uh, supported a referendum on Cape independence, apart from the one that was bringing the referendum legislation. And I think you know the DA don't support Cape independence outright at this point in time. And I think that's for understandable reasons. They're cautious about the rest of the, of the country, although perhaps that's something we should discuss, because I think I think uh, perhaps even that they've misunderstood. Um but, but at very least, uh, you know, the 58% of, we know from our polling that 58% of people in the Western Cape want a referendum. We know that raises to 65% amongst DA voters. Uh, we know the majority of DA voters want independence outright. Uh, so I think they absolutely have a moral obligation to consult with the people of the Western Cape in a referendum on Cape independence. And actually, we fully expect them to do so. What is the likely outcome if the DA keeps dragging its heels? Because in this instance, it's it's a political hot potato. If they were to come out and say, for instance, support a referendum in the Western Cape, it must be used by the ANC against the DA in other parts of the country. And it really is right now in probably the strongest position, not probably, definitely the strongest position it's been in, since 1994. So is that something that you took into account in the timing of handing over the formal application? Well, so, so look, yeah, yes, it is. And, and look, let, let's be clear. The referendum can't actually be called now. It's, it's, it's going to be, uh, it's going to, it's, it'll probably take about 18 months, I'm guessing, before all of the legislative hurdles are out the place. So I would expect us to see a referendum in about 18 months time. Um, so, uh, but, but of course, but clearly there are going to be two pressure. There's going to, going to be two pressure points every five years, the local government elections and the national elections. And actually every time we come to this, the DA will be able to roll out the same argument uh, and, and say, well, hang on a second. And, you know, please don't do this to us now. But actually, this is the only point in time where they really got their backs against the wall. Um, And I think um, actually and and I think in some ways they've misunderstood two things, in our opinion. Look, I I should say in our opinion. So, first of all, one of the things that that uh, that Corne Mulder talks about a lot for the Freedom Front who face this same problem of 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 being a national party where the majority of their voters are actually outside of the Western Cape. And Corne always says, look, it's it's not an either or it's an and and an and. And I think and this is something we have pushed the deal on and say, look, you, you absolutely don't have to abandon your voters outside of the Western Cape, anything but. Actually, what you have to do is you have to use, we, we understand that we're in a crisis situation, you have political power, and you have to use the fullest extent of your political power everywhere that you can. And where you're the provincial government, and actually you can take us out of this disaster and away from the ANC completely, you must do that. That doesn't mean you abandon your voters in, in Johannesburg or in, in Nelson Mandela. Where, where you can be the metro government, you must be the metro government. Where you can be in a municipality, then you must be the municipal, the municipal government. And actually, perhaps you're none of those things up in, in, in Limpopo, but actually you can, perhaps you have some wards and you can, and you can form structures on the ground. That the, so actually what I, what we suggest that the DA is they should take that approach and say, look, we will protect everybody who votes for us to the fullest extent of the powers that we have. And in the Western Cape, where we have the most powers, we're best placed to protect those people. But the other thing that I think the DA really is missing a trick on is, I think they're assuming that their voters in the rest of the country don't support this. And I, and I, and I really don't think that's the case. I think perhaps that it might be a more difficult decision in the rest of the country. Um, but I think we've, we've got this ideological divide and we see it all the time. You know, you know, probably the majority of our most fervent supporters live outside of the Western Cape, uh, you know, because people who are outside of the Western Cape see much more so than people in the Western Cape just how disastrous this is and just how close we are to, to, to implosion. 
And and I think an awful lot of people outside of the Western Cape want to have an ally, want to see the DA be able to show what they can do. So take this opportunity, show what you can do when you control tax money, when you actually are the national government, use that, at, you know, then they're going to have massive influence over the rest of South Africa and actually use that as a showcase. And that's exactly how the DA got to where they are now. Helen Zilla started off by being the mayor of Cape Town from managing the Cape Town very well. And people saw around the areas that hang on a second and then and then they got the province. So look, take over the, the Western Cape um, and sh- show what can be done, support the other people. And, 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 and yeah, in time, people will recognize the better the Western Cape does, the more obvious it will come to the rest of South Africa that the, the DA is a better option for government than the ANC or the EFF. So what happens now? You've handed over formally your application for referendum. Is there a time period in which you need to be answered? Well, look, we, we, so we've asked Alan, Alan Windy to uh, to call a referendum within 90 days uh, of the referendum legislation being in place. Um, and that doesn't mean that the referendum is going to take place in those 90 days, uh, but actually the, then he will ag- ag- agree a time together with the uh, with the IEC uh, and, and uh, then they'll fix this date. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, that uh, we, we don't want to tie them to a very specific date because clearly, you know, a referendum is a major task and, the, and there'll be other considerations too. So they've already got the, the private members bill before Parliament. Uh, so we say, look, get that bill through Parliament, get that bill passed. And then within 90 days of it being passed, just assure us that you're going to call a referendum. It doesn't just have to be on Cape Independence, by the way. We understand that the, the Constitution allows for these multi-question referendums. So actually, we, we, we envisage that referendum uh, having lots of different things in there. We envisage it having the things that they're already pushing for, control of the police, control of energy, federalism. That you know, The DA wants federalism. The, the, the Afriforum say they want tax federalism, which sounds a lot better than federalism. Um, and, uh, you know, and obviously, we're pushing for independence. And we would like to see a consultative referendum that has all of those things on the on the on the on the ballot paper. Clearly, we want Cape Independence, um, but and the and the DA is already going down that route. So I think you know we we, we just yeah you know, we're, we're we're all sort of dancing around this a bit because of the political sensitivities. But there is going to be a referendum on Cape Independence, and surely everybody can now see that in terms of the you know, how this is all this is all lining up. And if we see what's already in the public domain and we see what's already been declared, that you know, then, then people must realise that a referendum is now inevitable. And let's just get on with it. And, and it's, it's democracy after all. This Currency Focus is proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. With me now is Andre Siliers from Treasury One. And we're looking at a dollar rand at the moment, um, which has gone above that 15 level to the US dollar. Talk to me about the risk-off scenario that seems to be hitting the local units. Yes, that's an interesting one, uh, risk-off scenario. I've done some other work, uh, apart from looking at what happens in China and America and wherever. Uh, and I've gone back till 2016, and there's a very interesting pattern on unfolding since then, uh, that from the sort of last week of September to it's the around 10th to the middle of October, the rand has always weakened and always moved in a negative direction. So now I wonder whether this is a timing issue or whether it has to do with any changes in the fundamentals in the market as it stands. So let's talk about the energy crisis that is hitting the Northern Hemisphere and also concerns out of China. We have obviously seen Brent crude ticking up back to that $80 a barrel. Are you watching this unfold with caution? I mean, an electricity crisis in the Northern Hemisphere could be something that that really ignites market to the negative. Yeah, you wonder whether Eskim is uh, involved in the Northern Hemisphere and in China at the moment. But if you look at the Northern Hemisphere and you look at the oil price, then the oil price traditionally comes under a bit of pressure as we go into the winter season in the Northern Hemisphere. The energy crisis always unfolds around these periods because that's when the energy usage reaches high levels and imports of oil and so forth reaches high levels as well in anticipation of a winter season that lies ahead. We should be careful to call it a crisis or whether it's really just this time of the year. 
that's uh, preparation. So, so basically, Andre, you're saying you're saying that all of these elements are seasonal. One, the the weakness of the rand is a seasonal impact, and and two, the perceived energy crisis in the UK, of course, is a shortage of LNG. This is something that is just a seasonal norm. That's a, would that be that fair? That would be fair. That's a seasonal norm. It happens every year. And you can go and do the graphs. You can go and do the sums. That happens every year. Obviously, there's other reasons that comes in at times like this that exaggerate the situation and creates uh, more volatility. And currently, we do have the whole situation surrounding Evergrande. We know about that. Uh, they did make the payment at the end of the day last week, but that does not take them out of the woodworks, and it still puts China and that sector under the spotlight. We had seen that the Chinese Central Bank had pumped in some $55 billion last week to shore up liquidity in their markets. So, yes, obviously these things does have an impact and creates more volatility and more of a risk-off situation. And that's part of it. Obviously, we had the South African Reserve Bank meeting last week, holding interest rates at, at record lows with the repo currently at 3.5% in South Africa. But commentary seems to indicate that the MPC statement was hawkish enough to allow for an interest rate hike should the South African Reserve Bank need to move quickly at any point uh, down the line. Do you agree with that sentiment? I would agree with that sentiment. And we've had a central bank for the last couple of years that moves swiftly and that moves proactively. And I think the word here on proactively is most probably the most important one, because that's what we've seen from the central bank and that's how they act. If we look at the changes that they've made on the inflation targets and the expectations thereof, I would not be too concerned because that really a 0.1% upward change is nothing significant. What's more significant is the growth figures for the 2022 and 2023 year that was revised quite aggressively lower. That's more of a concern because that's the areas that we would actually want to see revised upwards. That's what we need in this economy because that's ultimately what will stimulate the employment sector and the creation of jobs. Low growth does not stimulate that and we've had a backlog, we've had a very, still have a very high unemployment. So those are areas of concern. But that also tells us that even if they do move interest rate upwards, it would not be aggressive moves upward it would not be drastic moves. It would be small and that would have less of an impact than we really think is, is significant. So, Andre, post the, this recent meeting, when have you modelled in the first interest rate increase out of the South African Reserve Bank? When can we expect Well, I that? look at America, I look at the Northern Hemisphere, I look at their stance on the movement of interest rates, uh, and I look at our inflation rate that is still very much contained at levels just slightly above the mid-target where Mr. Kanyahu wants it. And then I've penciled in only in the first quarter towards the end of the first quarter of next year, an interest rate increase in South Africa. So the first quarter of next year. And as you say, just a, what, a 25 basis point rate hike at that, that juncture? That would only be a 25 basis point increase, uh, not much more than that. And then uh, on top of that, maybe a further 25 basis points in the second quarter. Let's also just talk about the raft of economic data that's coming out this week and, and that may sway your opinion when it comes to factoring the direction for the RAND. We've obviously got uh, some data coming out on that'll give us direction on consumer health, on government finances. What will you be looking to most importantly this week? Well, I think the one that I look most importantly is actually not what happens this week. Uh, the government finances is important, but what's more important to me is we're getting close to the medium term budget speech of our new Minister of Finance. And that would be, I want to say, his first real public appearance uh, in Parliament, uh, where he gives us the statistics, the rundown, and his outlook going forward into 2022 and 2023. 
that would give us an idea of how a budget change can be imminent coming from him early next year. And I think that's more important to me than anything else at this point in time. This currency focus was proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. And that's where we leave it for tonight. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you same time tomorrow. Ciao. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.